Hi everybody, this is Arthi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across the lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. Acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate their continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we are going to be speaking to Missy. Welcome, Missy. And we're going to be talking about her chapter, that is her education journey. Tell us well, about you, Missy. Yeah, well, I'm Missy and I um, live in America. I am, I actually live in Georgia, which might explain the Southern accent you yeah. might hear. <laughs> Yours is so beautiful. Um, it's fun to connect across the world. Um, I am married. Um, I've been married for 24 years, which is um, mind boggling to me. I must've gotten married when I was 12. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just joking, just joking. Yeah. That doesn't, doesn't translate well. Um, um, but I have three children. I have a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old. And then a, I call him my baby, but he's 11. Yeah. Um, and then I have a little dog named Comet. He's my little fur baby, I call him. Aww. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's beautiful. So Missy, we're going to be talking about your education journey. Tell us what you're doing at the moment. And I'd love to hear where it all started. At the moment, I, I do a couple things um, in the world of education. Um, one, one of the ones that's most, I guess, tied to you know, my true like educator experience is that I, I tutor children um, and I tutor them in language. So I'm um, reading, writing. Um, and so that is what I do to kind of stay current in best practice. But at the same time, I also spend a lot of time still staying current on educational um research and evidence-based practices, um, because I also spend a lot of my time advocating for children within my community, and sometimes even sometimes around the world, depending on um, if it's Zoom and virtual like this, um, mm -hmm. to help children have access to evidence-based reading instruction. Um, what got you into tutoring and what got you into the space of um, advocacy? Well, I used to be a classroom educator. Um, that was what I did from the time I stepped out of um, college or university, as some people might say. Um, and then I taught for over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, and I mostly taught language arts during that time period. And I often taught um, in what we would call inclusion classrooms, um, where um, children of all abilities are in one classroom. And we were able to meet the needs of all different types of learners. And oftentimes at the school I taught, I worked with children who had language disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I didn't fully understand even as a teacher at that point, what that meant, I knew, I knew what it meant in the sense of what kids needed in order to become proficient readers and writers. Um, but I, I didn't fully know the most effective and efficient thing mm -hmm. that they needed when I was an educator. Um, and then fast forward, um, I moved, moved out of educating in the classroom and I kind of stayed at home for a little bit because I had three children and I got really busy. I tried to kind of jump back and forth between the classroom and home. And that was a little challenging and uh, with three um, wild and crazy and energetic boys. <laughs> so I moved into kind of staying at home a little bit, but I am also can't be at home too much. That's just the way I'm wired. And so I kind of stay connected to the education world through a lot of various, um, just staying current on my, my, um, my certification. So I continue to get PDs and then, um, which would be professional developments. Um, and then I often would, um, do like maybe sometimes subbing or, um, just short-term positions. At one point I even stepped back into the classroom. So, um, in that process, I learned, that, you know, I, 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 I kept running into kids who 
couldn't read very well. And I had learned in my university a certain way to instruct kids that we would call balanced literacy, which is, I think, a buzzword right now. It's all it's all there. But back in the day, it felt kind of revolutionary. And I thought it was like the way. Mm. And I was really good at it. <laughs> and um, I, I, I think when I when I left the classroom and then I had children of my own, I realized um, through my son's own experience when he struggled to learn to read that that wasn't the right way. So I began to educate myself. So that's where I stayed current. And I just started reading everything I could because I wanted to help my own son. And I wanted, when I finally figured out what the solution was for him, which would be what we would call structured literacy, which is really direct and explicit multi-sensory approach to teaching kids to read and write. I began to think about kids that didn't master that when I was in the classroom with them. And I wanted to find a way to kind of give back. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wanted, to, I think honestly, there was a, um, hoping to seek some redemption um, mm -hmm. for what I didn't know. And, you know, we, we can't always um, be responsible for what we don't know, but when we do know, and we have an opportunity to see something in a new way, in a new light, in, in a new perspective, it kind of like makes me a little emotional because I do have faces of kids that I taught that I know probably left my classroom and went onward and we weren't prepared. And so I thought if I can do that for kids um, and I, I can play a small part um, and help them do that, then whatever I can offer is what I'll do. So that was kind of the, the catalyst. And also I love to teach. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's just kind of wired into me. It always has been. And so it's part of my passion and part of my new knowledge and part wanting to have an opportunity to change what I didn't know before. That is so beautifully put. And it just, I, I can't even imagine what you went through in terms of when you learned about structured literacy and how that impacts all the children. Um, in a classroom to then think about the ways in which you may have taught and you know sure kids would have progressed in it but then there are those faces that didn't tell us when when those face when you picture those faces why is it so important and this will be connected to your son as well why is it so important that they are that literacy is important for them Everything in our entire lives is connected to literacy. Uh, I, I gave a board speech one day to my local board of education, and I, I reminded them that you have to know how to read and write in order to vote, in order to, um, in order to go to the store to read signs and to know where to go at the airport and to navigate learning to drive, like you have to pass a test that requires, that requires tons of written, um, you know, content and knowledge. Uh, if you want to get advanced education or learn a skill or a trade, you have to know. So literacy literally is the key to everything. It unlocks everything about our future. And mm -hmm. if children are being promoted from grade to grade and even at some point exited from schools and they are not proficient at reading, it affects not just them and not just their family, but our entire, their entire community. And our each district, it really does, each school district really does have a responsibility to ensure that every kid can enter into their community with the same opportunities, you know, and, and everyone will choose their own opportunities. But if some people enter and they don't have the code yeah. and the key, they're not going to have either success or they're going to have a really hard time finding success, or they may actually end up in a really bad place. You know, we talk a lot about, there's a phrase where we call it the school to prison pipeline. And so, so many kids who don't get what they need um, also end up becoming um, not to their own credit, but sometimes the kids that are getting in trouble because yeah. it's better to be the troublemaker than it is to be the kid that can't read. 
right? And so it's better to be the troublemaker than it is the kid that stumbles over their words sometimes as they're trying to um, tirelessly work through a code and, uh, you know, decoding something so inefficiently because they haven't been given the skills they need. And so the, that behavior then just becomes the focus for so many people because it's 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 being communicated more loudly than the need that sometimes they don't even have the words to express. Like they don't know, I can't read. They just know it's not coming out like their peers. Yeah. And so when a kid faces those struggles, they end up um, sometimes choosing a different path mm -hmm. that we would not support for them. And so, um, and that is not what we it's not what they want. It's not what our community wants, but it's, it's, it's a failure on the community for not giving them the skills. And so they can't, they can't be like everyone else in that sense. Absolutely. And I think you've highlighted two really big points. You know, we frequently say literacy um, or the phrase that that's thrown around heaps is literacy provides a better quality of life. And I would go and challenge people to reframe it and go, is it a better quality of life or is that a part of it, but it's access to life? And you pointed out that literacy is everywhere. If you're not a literate person in today's world, things are extremely, extremely difficult when you have to access life. The other point was the school to prison pipeline. And while the physical prison is there, there's also the prison of your mind. And Pam Snow beautifully puts it in that, sure, they might, they might not end up in jail, but what is, what's going on in their mind? Mm -hmm. And I'm limited by so many different things. Mm -hmm. Yes, the stories that they've told themselves yes. as they have had to kind of survive versus being able to thrive. Yeah. And yeah, and they are, they are trapped in those thought, that, that thought process of I can't, or I don't know how to, or I quit. And we as educators have the power to turn that into not yet, but let me show you not yet, but I know the way forward. And, yeah. and we have the, we have that power. And so just it, it, when I think about those kids that back in those classrooms, I can go year by year and I can call their names and I, and I, think to myself, man, if I could find them, yeah. I would you know, <laughs> offer to help them or see how they're doing or hope that someone past me was able to have access to the knowledge I have now and was able to help them. Absolutely. And let's, let's now delve into your son's journey. What happened there? When did you guys realize that the struggle existed and what happened next? We realized probably as early as preschool that there was something that was not, you know, he wasn't learning the way his peers were learning. Um, and w especially even for me, it was really more about, he was the baby of three boys. And so, and they had access to all the same things, you yeah. know, I'm a former teacher. And so my room is filled with books is filled with picture books. And I read to them while I was pregnant with them and I read to them in the hospital and we are literate people in our house. I, I read all the time. So they see me reading and we did bedtime stories, you know, and I played, um, goodness, I can literally remember <laughs> reading, uh, do you know, a snowy day by, um, Jack Ezra Gates, which yes. is the kid. That, okay. So yeah. I, I remember reading this to my kid, this is Matthew when he was little and, um, and it had just snowed, which is why I picked the book. Mm -hmm. And, and he, made some comment like that's just like me I played in the snow and then I took a bath and you know I wanted to keep the snow and it was he said it in a more preschool way but yeah. I remember texting one of my teacher friends and I was like oh my goodness Matthew just made his first connection and so and if you've ever taught like in a reading and writing workshop you know yeah. all the strategies and skills that we teach so I was like he made a connection it was a personal connection and you know it was just like celebrating how like my baby was just on his way to literacy success because you know he had done this this was this was kind of how my brain understood that he was on the road to success yeah. and um and so to for him to get into school and not uh, you know lead to he left preschool only knowing one letter sound 
and it was the letter M and it was, um, and actually probably if I really think about it, if I go back and look at that form, it probably was identifying letters. Cause I don't even know that they were doing letter sounds. Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. That's, that wasn't, that's kind of a revol revolutionary idea these days. And so he only knew the letter M and my other children knew all of their letters by the time they left preschool. And, um, and that's kind of interesting to me because, um, he, he was able to memorize, it was a little, um, faith-based preschool. So he was able to memorize like the Lord's prayer, yeah. but, but he didn't know any of his letters. And so, uh, I thought, gosh, that's so interesting. You know, that was like red flag. Mm -hmm. And there was a little note in his, that little end of the preschool form. And it said something like, you know, we loved teaching Matthew. Of course, it's always like the, you know, the positive affirmation, but then we wish he had learned more. Yeah. was the next statement yeah. and we hope that things go well in kindergarten it was just kind of like this ominous like oh so I went into the kindergarten saying hey I got this from the preschool and I'm a little concerned you know that perhaps mm. something's not right so you know we get into school and the, that pattern continued I you know I can really sum that up pretty simply is that kindergarten was very similar he didn't he excelled in like math and social skills, yeah. the reading and writing skills. He still was struggling, continued into first grade. And by first grade, not only did he have the reading problems, but now starting to get phone calls and the, the teacher kind of knew me pretty well. And she'd send me a text message, you know, oh, Matthew's getting an action plan today because he was misbehaving during reading groups or oh. Matthew's getting an action plan today because he was running around during writing time or Matthew failed his dictation again this week. It was just week after week. There was something that it was always language-based and um, not math. In, in fact, I remember he made the highest score in second grade on the math. Um, we have these district assessments they take at the end of each grading quarter to math, just, you know, kind of assess their knowledge that they, yeah. that they show mastery. And he, he made the highest math score because at that point, math didn't require any language. It was all just computation. So all that to say the, the pattern continued and it was really in second grade that we had a lovely teacher. She had been teaching for decades. We were her last class. She was retiring. Oh. And I think she held from the days when kids were taught the code yeah. and taught you know to to decode words and she she believed me mm. and she fought for me to get him tested and sure enough everything that we um were suspicious about was revealed in, in the school um, evaluation now schools won't actually diagnose children but they can uh, they can evaluate to identify weaknesses and so he had all the red flags for a child with dyslexia uh even the school psychologist said that his profile is, is, in, is in, is, you know, characteristic of a child with dyslexia. And yeah. so I remember getting the, um, going to the meeting and just hearing those words. And I, I cried more for the fact that I had an answer. And I thought, ah, now that we know we can fix this, right? Like I had a friend whose kid had dyslexia and I was like, we, we've got this. And, um, and so I, I hired a tutor. Um, that's what you did because the school system, didn't really have the right solutions. And so we hired a tutor and, um, what, what, what happened is that the school was teaching him to look at the first letter and to use context and to look at pictures. And this tutor was teaching him the sounds that the letters made. And she taught him all the short vowels and all the consonants. And they were building words, you know, it was CBC words. And then it was CBCE words. And we were, they were building the blocks of knowledge that he needed. But then he would go to school and he was kind of told not to do that. Yeah. And he was told. So that what we, so we were, my brain at that moment with him was, was struggling because I thought, goodness, we have access to a solution mm. that it's not, it's kind of being, uh, the solution is kind of being watered down and confused and muddied up by um, what the school doesn't seem to know. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was, that was our journey to understanding. And then this journey of trying to get him assistance. And it really, sadly, I can even fast forward a little bit. It wasn't really until Matthew was in the fifth grade 
that we got access to structured literacy every day, all day with fully certified teachers. And that is probably another story. It's a, that's a long story. It happened during the, the pandemic. We were able to see what the instruction looked like and we knew it just wasn't what our child needed. So we started asking more questions. I started reading more, educating myself more, finding experts. And um, we just, the school's just could not understand. As at one point, even one of the, the school's leaders said, I don't know why you would be asking for this, this structured literacy program. It's so boring. Yeah. And I just looked at her and just cried. And yeah. it does get emotional because I thought, I don't care if it's the most boring thing ever. It's what my kid needs. You know, it's, it's, this is life-giving to my kid. And he actually finds the process of having a world that's been closed off to him unlocked for the very first time. And he's experiencing success and you are withholding that from him. And no, my child didn't have, you know, a, a, a terminal disease, but he did have what could be a terminal problem, which is illiteracy. And to be in the fifth grade and not be able to read and write like your peers, it begins to spiral and he was experiencing anxiety and depression and um, visibly we could see the legs shaking when he was reading and, you know, biting on his fingers and biting on his shirt. And just, he just, we saw this, this little boy who would, he was little, yeah. so vivacious and so full of life, just shriveling up right before our eyes. Mm -hmm. And I thought he just needs this. And so we weren't able to help. They, it, there was just so, we tried so hard to help them see in the nicest, kindest ways. It was meeting after meeting, email after email. I was sending all this information. I was literally trying to like educate them on evidence that there's a different way that we learn to read than what they're used to. And, um, and so um, that really was, it was a journey that forever changed me. Mm -hmm. And as I, progressed through that journey. Um, I remember the first time I had to send an email, it was to the state because we were having so many problems with, with the local district. And I remember, cause at this point I'm really involved in my community. I'm, I'm, I'm like on the PTA. I serve at the school for everything. I'm there to sub. I'm just like the forever teacher, forever part of the community. And I thought, oh man, like I'm becoming that parent. <laughs> I just remember thinking and just click send on this first email that started this whole ball to get my kid what he needed was, it was a crisis identity. And I had, I remember thinking to myself when I finally clicked it, my kid matters more to me than what the people in this community think about me. It's a really tight knit community. Yeah. And I thought at the end of the day, my kid needs to know that his mom was brave enough yeah. to do the right thing to help him versus being worried about what people thought about her in the community. And also there's so many kids that were around him. I mean, even in our own neighborhood, the street I live on, they yeah. all go to the school, all of the, like so many kids needed what he needed. And so many parents didn't know what I was coming to know even more. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I don't do this, I didn't know where that was heading. Like I didn't know, to, I didn't know then what today looked like, you know, but at that moment, I, there was this like separation of, I'm just going to become this person. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm, probably not going to be liked by everyone because there's going to be some consequences for yeah. this email and hopefully some change and change is painful and it stirs up feelings and emotions and chaos sometimes, but it, it just became so worth it. And, and also now I could say clicking send in some way was a way to say, I'm sorry to all of you that I didn't know better and that I did the same thing that these teachers are doing. We're not bad people. We were good people. Our hearts were pure. We wanted to do the right thing. We just didn't know. And now that I know, I can't be quiet. I just, I can't be quiet. Absolutely. Wow. What an absolute roller coaster for every for everyone that's involved in it. Um, 
I have two big questions from what you've just said. The first one is you said that you started learning about structured literacy. My first question is, what is structured literacy? My second question is, if only if you're comfortable with this one, the content of that email, what mm. was it? I'm so curious um, to know what that was. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Well, structured literacy is what I call the antidote to balanced literacy. It is, and I've written this a thousand times in my child's IEP, so I hope I can rail this off in the correct order, but it's direct, explicit, multisensory, structured, or systematic, I would say, systematic instruction. Um, and in this case, it's specifically in the realm of literacy. So that type of instruction is beneficial to kids like my kid in general for every content, but in literacy, it's critical. Um, and so what that means is that kids need to be directly told what they're learning. There needs to be no guessing yeah. and no, and no wondering it's explicit. It's, it's to the point um, it's multi-sensory. That doesn't necessarily mean I got to get shaving cream out and sand. It just might mean I'm tapping each word or, or sorry, each letter as I read it, because I need to make sure I say or understand each sound. Um, and so, and then, um, and then it's, it's, it's systematic. And that, that one is the one I always kind of harp on, but is that it follows a systematic scope and sequence. Um, and so we start with the most basic foundational skills, which, you know, in my son's case, and even with some of the kids I work with, that means going back to as simple as consonants and vowels mm -hmm. and, um, and then building up that, that base of knowledge until kids can make words. And then eventually, you know, they can make sentences and then it just gets more and more complex as we go along. Long, but um, it's the it's the method of instruction. And what I learned when I was on this journey is that a lot of people in balanced literacy were so focused on comprehension, which is important. It is the goal. But it's like putting the cart before the horse. Um, if the if the emphasis is on comprehension to begin with, and they don't have the skills to read it themselves, then we're kind of expecting them to do something that they're not ready to do yet. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't have in our classrooms, read alouds and, you know, we're learning great content and vocabulary, mm -hmm. you know, but we are really focused on um, when they're in structural literacy, giving them the skills they need to be able to do all those things independently. And when all those, when we've built up enough of those skills, they can begin to read simple texts. We call them decodables. They're just books that contain skills taught so they can practice what they've taught mm -hmm. versus in the past, there was a variety of skills, some that were very advanced, which kids didn't have an even, you know, a chance at reading. So they were forced into using some coping skills, like the first letter or look at the picture. And so, um, and Matthew got really good at that. He's a smart little boy. Um, but it was always so telling on the last page because it didn't follow the pattern and Matthew couldn't read the last sentence on those predictable texts. And so even the resources we have within our classrooms might look a little different. Mm -hmm. um, but the goal here is that we're laying the foundational skills. The goal is always that a kid will comprehend on their own, but we're building the, the, the building pieces, the building blocks so that they can do that independently Yes. in the most effective and efficient way. And what so many people unintentionally are doing in balanced literacy classrooms is teaching them what poor readers do. And they're teaching them to try to get to that goal in the most inefficient way. And some kids figure this out. Like my oldest son just kind of seemed to learn to read as if by magic, which is why I was more alarmed with my youngest because I thought he was like reading by the second month of kindergarten and we're in second grade, you know, this is not working. So, um, and my middle child struggled a little more. He needed more support, but he finally got the ear. Still doesn't have a great foundation, especially it shows up when he's spelling and when he's writing. Yeah. So, and then my youngest definitely needed that. So that's it in a nutshell. There's so much more there, but I think that should be pretty good base. And then you ask about the letter, yeah. um, the letter was a, I, I, my friends that might watch this in the future are going to laugh because I write letters. <laughs> they, they could be turned into books. Um, when I believe in something wholeheartedly, I'm very loyal and I'm very committed and I'm very persistent. Uh, my mom and dad, when I was little said that um, one day I was either going to grow up to be a lawyer 
or a preacher because <laughs> I had so much to say and I had so many opinions and I had so much passion and funny enough, I didn't become either, but I think I became yeah. an even better version of those. <laughs> so, um, cause I, I found my voice in a different way. Uh, and I put all those skills into hopefully fighting for kids, but, um, but, um, that letter, um, the first of many, um, uh, was a, what we would call it in, I live in America. So in my state, when your child's right to a free education is not honored, or we would call violated, you have a parental right to send an email to the state and it's called filing a complaint. And that's why it was so scary to me. Cause I was basically reporting to the state that my district was not providing my child with faith. He needed structured literacy, which I asked for him to be put into. Um, and I was denied. I was told he couldn't be in that class. And because uh, they were, they did have a class that they were piloting and he was denied access to that. And I was also denied a few accommodations, one of which was um, in his IEP that he would receive copies of notes before class so, um, because, because of his dyslexia, copying notes is a very laborious task. Um, there is basically he was copying letter by letter. And so he would maybe get one or two words down in a full class period when the rest of the class would have a whole page. So he wasn't actually learning either because he was so focused on letter by letter. Yeah. Later we had him tested and he, he, um, in the, in the fourth grade, couldn't write the alphabet A to Z by memory. He had to have cues. Okay. So you can see like how, and this is a child that's got above average IQ. It's not like he's not, he doesn't have the ability to do this. Um, it's just the processing um, of the letters and he needed some direct ex explicit multisensory systematic instruction and handwriting as well. Um, and so he was um, struggling. And so um, I filled out with, with a, the help of a great mom friend who had walked this path before me, I filled out a form and then I sent the letter and a very impassioned letter with all of my quote unquote proof, um, which, which consisted of about 21 emails, very nicely crafted, like educating them on why he needed this accommodation, why he needed this instruction, basically begging them in the nicest of ways, 21 times. And I was told no, 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 every time. And so that stirred up a passion in me, <laughs> um, because it was my own kid and, um, and it still was hard. I mean, I, I knew it was, the, it was more the act of sending it and the snowball effect that was going to start. Yeah. I would like to say that that day probably could go down in history as the day I turned into an advocate. Mm -hmm. Um, because my, that was when I, I, the fear of retaliation and the fear of what people might think about me just melted off of me. There was a little freedom in clicking it. It was like I, we had gone on a little fall break, we call it. You guys might call it holiday, but we had a long weekend in the fall. And I I got back and I was staring at it. And my friend was like, have you sent it? And I was like, no, you know, just staring, yeah. staring. And then there was just something in me, this, this almost an, an eventual quiet peace and calm that thought I'm doing this for my kid and hopefully it'll change the way for other kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and the cool part that I know today for anyone who might find themselves at that moment is that it, we have made changes in this County and there's changes happening at the state and they really are changing kids' lives. It's not perfect. We have a lot more work to do, but we've, we've definitely come far. So that little click began a conversation and a lot of ramifications that hopefully change the kids in the classrooms that are waiting for all the adults around them to wake up and figure this out. Yeah, that is incredibly powerful. And to know that you have the backing of theory, but not just theory, what it looked like in the classroom, how it was impacting your son then, but also how it would, what impact it would have in the future. So it was going across so many different timelines for you to, yeah, for you to have been that passionate and in sending that email. What happened next for the school? Um, 
that began, you know, it was interesting. There was kind of an immediate response uh, from the school to to fix. Like I suddenly had a meeting and it's like, oh, now your child can be in this program. And it was just, it was, it was almost a little bit, um, I don't want to say comical because nothing about that year was comical, but it was kind of this, it was like, oh, now you can offer it, you know, because now it's gotten serious. Um, they were found to be out of compliance. It, it takes about 60 days for the state to do an investigation. And there's a lot of conversations and it's the honest is on the parent to prove the failure. So not only did your child not get what they needed, then there's 60 days of where you're speaking to an investigator, you're sending copies of emails, all the proof. And then you have to, then it all goes and then there's a waiting period. So Missy, you talked about the 60 days um, where it was interviews with investigators. Um, tell us more about that. So the state assigns an investigator that's kind of a an, a, a well-educated and a well-equipped um, individual. Usually they, they've had um, uh, like either like some education law degree or they've worked at the state level, but they're in this point, like a medium point, uh, like a middle, you know, moderator type space. Um, and they just investigate. They take the, they get information from the district and then they get information from the parent yeah. and then they do the investigation. And so um, it took about 60 days for that. I think I mentioned that. And then uh, you have to, then you go into like a waiting period. And it, I, I got an email, literally, it was just like the, I think the day before Christmas break or, or, or winter holidays, we might call it. And I, um, I was scared to open it because it's just this, you know, here it is. And I opened it and, um, and, and, this, and I was right. Um, the state was found to be, um, not in compliance with, um, they were, had basically been in, out of compliance with IDA, which is the, our federal law that ensures that children that have disabilities will have access to a free, um, and public education. And so, um, what that meant was that, um, they needed to have an IEP meeting with me and fix their mistake and then offer my child the services that he had been denied. But it also triggered a training for all the teachers um, in that school um, to learn what it meant to offer um, accommodations and follow the law as far as an IEP, what it demands of, of the local schools. Um, unfortunately, it continued though. I mean, we, we ended up filing two more state complaints before we finally took it to a, a more, um, a more serious level. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think what I just thought the whole time though, is this, this was during the pandemic. This was the year of 2020. Wow. So we were all digital at this mm -hmm. time. And, um, so all these meetings were happening on zoom and, um, it was so hard. It, I had a total of 16 IEP meetings in one school year. Some of those were because the meeting was two days because it was so long. They had to take it over to the next day. And I thought it shouldn't be this hard for a bunch of adults to get into a room and create a plan that offers faith yeah. a nine-year-old child who literally simply needs to learn to read. Yeah. But it was so difficult. And they, and it just got more and more challenging. There was even one meeting where they sent a lot of district leaders. I felt like it was more of a scare and intimidation tactic where, and I did, I ended up having, I think probably I, I didn't know at that time, but right before it started, I got really short, short of breath and my heart was racing and I got very nervous. And I, I called a friend and I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like my hands feel like they're like losing their oxygen. And she said, it sounds like you're having a panic attack. And I had never had one before. And I said, well, I'm about to go into this meeting and I already feel so defeated. I feel so intimidated. I just want my kid to read as simply all I want. And, um, we had also at this point had our child privately evaluated and you can request a private evaluation if you disagree with a local school evaluation. So we did that. And, um, and during that evaluation, my son told the psychologist that, his greatest fear in life was a spelling test and that his greatest hope was to learn to write. And his biggest dream in life was to learn to read. And he was nine in the fourth grade. And, um, I went into that meeting and I thought, I'm going to read this to them yeah. and I'm going to, I'm going to tell his story for him because he can't tell his own story right now, but I'm going to tell his story. And, um, 
And I remember when the meeting started, I I, re- I had learned, I was getting smarter. <laughs> I was educating myself and I had learned if, if they stack a meeting, make everyone go around and introduce themselves and tell how they work with your kid. So before the meeting started, I said, hey, I just want to start off and I'm, I'm Missy, I'm Matthew's mom, I work with him every day. And I'd love for each of you to introduce yourself. I don't know all of you and explain who you are and how you work with Matthew. And the, the district psychologist said, I'm the district psychologist and I'm here to support my team. Mm. And I thought this is a meeting. And I said, this is a meeting for Matthew Purcell. So if you're not here to support Matthew Purcell, then you can leave. And um, there was a pause in the meeting and he did, he was asked to leave. <laughs> and uh, which was a win for me because that was actually the person that was creating the most stress for me because it seemed so unnecessary. It was a really like, let's gang up and put more people in this meeting. Mm-hmm. So mom is outnumbered. And so it just felt uh, it's like the more I, the more I just simply wanted him to learn to read the more pushback. And it was astounding to me because I thought it's already hard enough to hear my kids not reading proficiently in fourth grade. <laughs> have all these meetings and I just want to work with y'all. I mean, I would, I just broke down in one meeting and cried. I said, I just want him to read. I'm asking for structured literacy because we know it works. Ask any parent of any kid that has dyslexia and they will tell you, this is what taught my kid to read. Um, We have so much evidence. We have personal stories. This is what works. And so um, that, that part of my, that year, um, was the catalyst for why I go to IEP meetings for free and just help parents. Someone did that for me. Um, a good friend named Lauren, and she did that for me. She showed up for me. And um, it was like, it was a little secret society of moms who've gone before. And um, combined with what I knew about what schools were doing, because I had been one of those teachers um, and what now I knew about the system, as far as kids with IEPs and how they are sometimes underserved Mm -hmm. and not given access to the correct evidence-based instruction. Mm -hmm. I thought, and, and the fact that so many parents don't even know that they're being led astray in these meetings. Like I was, 100% led astray for two years. And I was a former teacher from this school. Yes. So parents who aren't even in those seats, how much worse could it possibly be? And it was. And so um, that's kind of what fueled the the other side of me is the advocacy side is just once Matthew got what he needed, I thought there's so many parents going through this and Mm -hmm. I can show up and help you. Um, I can, I can, you know, listen out and I can tell you that's not what that means or tell you this is what this means or give you your rights, help you understand that booklet they give us. They give you this big book before every meeting that has all your rights, but it's written like, it's written like a, you know, in legal terms. Yeah, it's Nobody, understands it. <laughs> yeah. Nobody understands it. It's, it's literally IDA, but no one understands it. It's just written kind of hard to understand. And as a parent, you can't even imagine what it means for you. Yeah. So, cause you're just thinking about, I need my kid to do X, Y, Z. You don't know that this, this over here really protects you. So um, yeah. So that's just been that, that letter led to a series of events that year, which eventually led to my kid getting what he needed, but also led me to hopefully just hopefully being a part of a bigger group of people in a bigger world, doing my little part um, to hopefully change a kid's life so that they don't end up where we ended up. Yeah, absolutely. From that, I have two questions for anyone that might be listening in on this conversation. What, what is dyslexia? And my second question is, what are Matthew's hopes and dreams, the ones that he stated, looking like today? Oh, I love those questions. Dyslexia is basically, I love my psychologist. She's like anything that keeps a kid from reading. (laughs) But joking aside, it's really a a processing, um, you know, uh, in the brain. There is, an like for Matthew, it's orthographic processing weaknesses. Sometimes it can also be combined with working memory um, phonological awareness processing. So there's a couple areas and those come up on a, you know, 
any kind of standard um, cognitive test. Mm -hmm. um, there are some more strategic tests that psychologists can give um, that give more details. Like Matthew was given a test called the GORT, the Great Oral Reading Test, which I love. It was very telling. Um, and there's a C-top um, and I think the FARs, a couple others. Um, so, but they'll, they'll give a full battery and it's in that battery of tests when they get a psychological evaluation that you can see where your kid has so many strengths because they all do. Mm -hmm. And then they, they, there's glaring weaknesses. And for Matthew, it was very obvious and it was in the orthographic processing. Yeah. Um, and so um, dyslexia is a kind of a spectrum disability where some kids are more heavily impacted than others. Mm -hmm. And some kids also have multiple um, impacts. So for example, Matthew additionally has dysgraphia, which is um, a learning disability in the area of writing. Um, which kind of explains the earlier conversation we're having with the note-taking. And that was something the school didn't identify. That only came through our private evaluation so that he wasn't even receiving services for that up until the evaluation point. And then also he had a language processing um, disorder, um, which is common because it is a language-based disability. So he had expressive and receptive, not super... Um, you know, significant. It wasn't like super obvious on all of the tests, um, but we had him privately evaluated and she was able to see the areas where he was really struggling. What was really unique about that is that I learned, <laughs> I've got so much more education here, but it was in those areas that on the language, because we weren't remediating those, we were it was putting up a wall for him to really fully experience success with structured literacy. He was seeing success, but as when we begin to tackle, mm -hmm. we begin to look at Matthew comprehensively. And we're like all the people in the room, like the speech teacher in the room and the, the, the dyslexia specialist and the regular ed teachers all in the same room, looking at Matthew, watching him learn, watching him process or not process in the right way and be able to create a plan together for his success. That to me was like, this is what's missing. Yeah. So many times, you know, there's like a little test and we see there's a weakness here. So we attack this one weakness mm. and we don't realize there's other things going on that, yeah. that are contributing factors to how well they respond to mm. interventions, how quickly they respond um, or if they respond, respond at all. So it can look different for every kid um, and there can be other things that can come with it. But in, the, in a nutshell, it's just a disability learning to read. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Matthew's hopes and dreams, oh, that makes me happy. I mean, we, here we are. He just wrapped up his sixth grade year. He can read really well. He is a, a, a very proficient reader. Um, and he is, oh my gosh, his writing is uh, not a fear anymore. That used to be a nightmare for him. And if you could, I wish I could, I, if I had thought I would show, but I have pictures of his fourth grade writing, which oh. and he knows this, this is not disrespectful to him, but it looks a little bit like a foreign language or, or even something out of this world. It's, it doesn't make sense. It's not decodable. It was like two yeah. sentences. Fast forward to sixth grade. He independently researched and wrote an entire paper about Canada and it is beautiful. It has an introduction. It has transition words. It has facts that he collected himself and paraphrased, not copied or plagiarized, um, and a conclusion. And it's just, and he did it independently. He was given structured, yeah. explicit, you know, direct instruction on how to write. And he was able to do it. And so um, now spelling, I probably, if he were in the room and I said, are you still scared of spelling? I don't know if he's scared of it, but spelling is still kind of a struggle. That is like the last frontier for a lot of our kids, especially if they received late intervention, yeah. um, always learning. <laughs> so we've given him some tools. Uh, it's much better. And it's just a few words. It's a few of those sounds that are still challenging for him yeah. come so far, but he loves to play baseball. Now, if you asked him, and I know because I just chatted with him earlier today, he yeah. would tell you he wants to be a pro baseball player. And yeah. I, I know him as mama, but he's a good little baseball player. And now a lot of kids, and this isn't true of all kids with dyslexia, but there is this conversation that some kids, because they have dyslexia, have a super, you know, a super skill or a super strength. And I've always told Matthew that his super strength is definitely athletics and especially baseball. I mean, if 
I wish I could, like when he was little, he, he played T-ball and this little kid was like sliding into bases when he was three. That's not something they teach you, you know, when you're three and he was like, he was kind of overdoing it, (laughs) you know, like, dude, you don't have to slide into every base. It's unnecessary, but he figured out and he hit his first home run off coach pitch when he was like four. And I mean, just just, you know, and he just continued to excel. And so he's working on becoming a better pitcher. Now he's a pitcher. He's a lefty, um, and a, and a, and a first baseman. Um, and and if he's not doing those, he'll play outfield, but he loves it. He's very driven to do it. He is a leader on that field. He, it's something he feels successful at, and he has always felt success at, which is why I think he loves it because on the field, I think he could see, he was trying to do like a double play on the t-ball field, which yeah. is not where most kids are. That's not a skill they learn until later. And the kids, he would like catch a ball at first and throw it to third to get a second out. Well, the third baseman wasn't ready for that. So we had to tell him to stop doing it because we were getting <laughs> unnecessary outs. Right. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think he could see the field in a way, you know, and see those plays and see how it could work. It made sense to him. So I do believe for him, this is his super skill. Um, I think, I hope every kid finds their super skill and their super strength and they're able to excel, but we're so happy that we removed the barriers for him. Mm. Um, I do realize that I don't really know how I ended up, um, I'll get emotional. I don't know how I ended up finding the right people to help me who led me to more people to help me. Yeah. And I feel I know the word privilege is thrown around a lot, but in some ways I somehow was, I somehow found, or people found me and, um, it really changed the trajectory of my kid's life. Cause I have no doubt that had I not found them, yeah. had, had I not had a view because of the pandemic into what his world and what it was really, what was going on with him, especially the anxiety part, mm-hmm. I just, I don't, we wouldn't be having this conversation today mm-hmm. and I don't know where he would be. And I, I don't want in my heart of hearts, I don't want this to be just chance, you know, or happen chance. Like I want it just to be when a kid comes to school and it's time to start learning to read, this is what everybody gets. And some kids are going to need a little bit more of it. Like Matthew needed structural literacy literacy always. He needed more of it to be successful than the average kid. Um, But I want that to be the, everyone's ready. And when they walk in for him to be in the place he was for the last two years and people wanted to help him, they wanted to work with me. There were no begging of anything. It was handed to him willingly. Every kid deserves that. That shouldn't be a special thing. That shouldn't be because a mama fought really hard. That should be for everybody. So that's what drives me and keeps me going. And I want to make sure that that truly becomes reality for everybody everywhere. They all deserve it. Absolutely. And if we're saying, and I think we're seeing this globally where literacy rates are dropping and it really is a crisis. And I'll always um think about this TED talk by Melissa and I can't remember her last name but she talked about phonics and she talked about that sort of the slow bubbling but it really isn't the slow bubbling if we know what we know now it's that urgency that something needs to happen and we've been we've seen like since COVID right Mm -hmm. that these gaps existed but what COVID did was made it more transparent and made it I think in that sort of physical setting, the help that was given to students or what wasn't acknowledged, just day in, day out, you're there with the student and you're either helping them and don't even realize this is how much you're helping them. However, during COVID, being behind a screen, there is a level of independence that was required, which meant that if you couldn't do something, it showed up very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. And now how much of it has shown up to it leading to conversations, to it leading to people just generously providing PD upon PD. And it wasn't just during COVID, it wasn't just during lockdowns, even today, it's still 
is continuing. And I hope that every teacher, every educator, but also not just educators, parents know yes. about this information. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I do have a couple more questions. So when uh, Matthew goes into high school, is he going to continue to require structured literacy? And what does that look like? And my second question is, since the school started this, it's been has it been two years of the journey into structured literacy? What are the what are the conversations or what is it like for them now that they've provided? Yeah. I hope that every kid will get structured literacy K-12. Our middle and high school are not there yet. We definitely, the conversation has definitely started in the elementary level um, and specifically k2 was the heavy focus and then also kids who might be in special education hmm. and so those teachers um, are the ones that have been the target audience there are plans to broaden that into the upper grades which i think is critical um matthew won't need continued intensive remediation hmm. um, in order to be successful but he will need knowledgeable educators about disabilities, and also just neurotypical ch children in general. I think that's a key. Um, but also, if everyone's using structured literacy, which even in the high school is critical, like especially when we think about writing and reading for knowledge, there's so much, you know, we're reading to learn at this point, yeah. and we're reading to gain new knowledge. So giving kids best you know, using effective and evidence-based practices for kids to tap into that knowledge, but also to be able to write about it um, is crucial. And also the knowledge of the kids in, in the landscape of your room is crucial and what you might need to offer for them in the realm of accommodations. Because what I've also learned is that legal documents like IEPs do have I accommodations written into them, but Sometimes not all teachers understand that they're responsible for using those accommodations and providing them for children consistently and not withholding them if it appears like a kid might not need them consistently. Yeah. Uh, the thing about dyslexia in most neurotypical children is that there's inconsistent progress. Um, and that's what's most puzzling, I think, about kids and why there's so many misconceptions about there out there about kids with dyslexia and other learning disabilities is because one day, like Matthew could read the word the, but then he couldn't read it two days later. And that's because it wasn't orthographically mapped into his little growing amazing brain, you know? And so, so for me, that was like, oh, he's got learning to do. Not yes. yet. Right. Not yet. We're going to get there. Um, but it, it, knowledgeable teachers or actually teachers who aren't as knowledgeable might sometimes say, well, oh, that kid might be faking it or they're just not trying. They didn't try hard. They didn't edit their paper um, or they didn't need to use their computer yesterday. So they don't really need that accommodation today. So there's just some knowledge there that we have to, we have to bridge the gap there in that knowledge of what teachers know about neurotypical kids. And not all teachers are here. Some teachers are well beyond. They've taken the PDs, they're learning, they're growing. I'm seeing a trend of more of that, but but we experienced and have continued to experience a lag there. Mm. Um, and then um, and then just to have the, the access to that, that education is crucial. Absolutely. That's that's beautifully put. And yeah, just to think about how much knowledge actually goes into providing um, or delivering it, teaching in this manner mm -hmm. is ridiculous. And it's still every day is a day to learn for the yes. effort. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Missy, thank you so much for taking the time to really share your journey, but your but Matthew's journey as well. Um, I really do appreciate it. And before we do wrap up, has there been anything that I haven't asked or something you've wanted to share um, before we go into the key takeaways? Um, gosh, no. I mean, I could probably talk forever. I'm sure you've noticed that. But, um, <laughs> that is <but> great. <laughs> I, I, I just hope, I guess I hope that um, people, when they hear a story, I hope it helps them know that they're not alone. 
Um, whether you're a teacher or a parent and you're somewhere in the middle of this journey, I think the best thing to know is if you're in the journey, um, I heard someone say the other day, even if you're falling, if you're falling forward, that's progress. And so if your kid's falling forward in their journey to be remediated, that's progress. If you're falling forward as an educator and because you're having to, you know, kind of disconnect from things that you loved and embrace things that you're not sure about. That's okay if you're falling forward. Um, and science and evidence are ever evolving. We're continuously learning and we're perfecting, you know, as teachers would say, their craft, they're perfecting their craft. And if we're in that process of not staying where we were yesterday, um, that's progress. And when you do that, you're changing someone's life forever. You are their way to become a successful part of their community. So don't sell yourself short if you're in that spot um, and keep pursuing it. Um, and I think in the end, we see the result. It's around us. Thank you so much. And I think those probably made it the key takeaways for um, anybody in the world that might be listening uh, in on this conversation. So I'd, yeah, I'd like to say thank you again. And to everyone that um, that will be listening to this conversation it's going to be available on the human chapters youtube channel please subscribe um i'm looking for more subscribers we have some really good conversations on there and it's also going to be available on human chapters podcast on the different platforms so share it with whoever may connect thank you so much